Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the House Podcast. Uh, this week we dove in to um, the gospel, but um, specifically we see in multiple places um, in the gospels where Jesus refers to it as the gospel of the kingdom. Um, and we felt a strong press to just talk about the gospel. What is the gospel? Let's talk about the man Jesus. But also, um, when he says gospel of the kingdom, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for the world? Um, and so, like everything, we have to start with Jesus and what he's done for us. And so this week we opened up the world of the gospel of the kingdom um, just by talking about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So it can be clear and we can understand that, um, but also just understand it as the doorway into the kingdom of God and not the end, but the beginning of life with him. And so I um, hope you guys enjoy this. I hope it blesses you. I hope it um, spurs you on into more. That's the big thing is we hope that understanding that the gospel of the kingdom Um, isn't just the gospel of salvation, but salvation through Jesus um, is the first step into um, the kingdom of God and understanding what the kingdom of God is. So um, we love you guys. As always, just reach out if you have any questions. Um, If you want to get connected, um, just find us on the website, social media, anything like that. And hope this blesses you. Love you. Um, we're going to probably spend a couple weeks, maybe three. We'll see how it plays out. Um, but there are multiple times in the New Testament when Jesus calls it the gospel of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So go and tell them the gospel of the kingdom. Tell them the gospel. Gospel means good news, right? Mm-hmm. We know that. So gospel means good news. So go tell the good news of the kingdom. And what does the kingdom mean, right? We, we understand from a salvation standpoint what the gospel of salvation means, but what does the gospel of the kingdom mean? And if Jesus said it, then we need to start putting our eyes on that. Amen? If Jesus, if it came out of his mouth, then we need to understand what is the gospel of the kingdom and what does it mean for us. And so today, we're just going to start at the beginning of the gospel. It it may take a few weeks to get through all of it. Um, It will, because it's so big. Um... But we're going to start at the beginning of the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it mean for me? And and what have I been bought for? Not just bought unto, but what have I been bought for by Jesus? And so, um, go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. When I say we're going to start at the beginning, I mean we're starting two chapters away from the beginning. All right, I'm going to read, uh, just starting in verse 1. We're going to be hopping around all over the place, so just, uh, if you got a fast finger, just get ready for it. Got it. Chapter 3, now this, uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we can eat from any tree in the garden. But about the fruit, uh, but about the, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, "You must not eat it, or touch it, or you will die." No, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In the south we call that naked, just for clarity. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know why I had to say that. (laughs) Verse 11, Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband. Yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And he will eat the plants of the field. And you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and eat forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work, the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim in the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Um, before we jump in, I just want to highlight the, the goodness of God, right? Um, in verse 3, the serpent says, In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And we look at that and go, What a liar! And at the end, Verse 22, the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. It's the same thing. He said the same thing, right? But he twisted the lie of God and said it's not good for you. Right? He's he's chasing the idea that God does not have your best interest at heart. God does not love you. But he used the truth to manipulate them to disobey. Does that make sense? Why do we have to understand this? Because even in this, this is mind-boggling. Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. God's pushing them out of the garden was his goodness. God's saying, you have to leave so that you don't take from the tree of life and live forever in this state, 
because I have someone coming. Amen? So he's, he's saying, go and get out of here. And we look at that and say, what a cruel God. And from the beginning, if we just look at it, we can see His goodness all over it. But He said, I'm not banishing you because I hate you. I'm banishing you because I have to save you. And if you eat the other tree that I did give you, if you eat that tree, now in this state, you'll live forever in the state that I can't get you in. It's the way that He set the garden up. Amen? You see that? And so even at the very beginning, the, the chapter that we look at, and say, this is when sin happened, He separated from us, from God, and all this stuff. And it's true, that is what happened. But at the very end of it, we just see His goodness in the Trinity. His love for mankind. Amen? Amen. Like from the beginning, we see that with I just feel His heart broken on that. I feel His heart broken, going, I wanted so much more for them. I wanted so much more for them. And now we have to actually remove them from the place that we created them for because they did it wrong. It's His goodness and His kindness. Do you see His love in that? Do we see His love in that? So, sin separated us from God. Sin is not just the separation, but it is... The, the separation from God is the result of sin. we make sense of that? So we need to understand, if we need to understand what salvation is, we need to understand what sin is, right? And so sin, that word is thrown around a whole lot. I'm probably going to cry a whole lot. I've been crying since I woke up this morning, so just bear with me. I don't know what it is. Um, but sin, we throw the word around a lot, just kind of like praise, Right? Praise, praise. We just—it's kind of this like Christianese. We learn these these words, and then we don't really fully try and wrap our heads around what does this mean. And so, sin in both Greek and Hebrew comes from the word. <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm from Luttrell, Tennessee, and it sounds like they talk like Luttrell there. So I'm not going to try and do a whole lot of Greek today. So just bear with me. But it's hata. It's H-H-A-T-A-H. And that's the overarching word that we understand for sin. And what it means is to miss the mark. Mm -hmm. In Greek and in Hebrew, it's an archery term, right? Um, So it wasn't necessarily you shot a sin. It was you shot, and the sin is anything that didn't hit the bullseye. Anything. So there's there's this bullseye. And anything outside of that is sin. Does that make sense? So when we're, why do we have to understand that? We're not sitting around picking and choosing what is sin and what's not. Anything that is not in His nature, in His character, in His perfection, in His righteousness is sin. We have to understand that or then we start going, well, is this a sin or is this a sin? That's not the question. We don't need to ask what is sin. We need to ask what is holiness. We don't need to say, what can I get away with? It's what makes me more like Him. How do I get closer to Him? How do I become more like Him? And we don't need to talk about this sin, this sin, this sin, because what do we start doing? We start judging each other, and we start ranking sins, right? When we understand that anything outside of the the bullseye is fair game. That is sin, because it's not holiness, 
in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we have to understand this thing because we end up just cutting each other. We don't even understand what we're doing. We're sitting here judging. We don't even understand that we're, we're sinning by doing that. Right? Like, what are we doing? We're just, we're crazy. We're just crazy people that go, yeah, I'm just going to sin while accusing you of sin. That's like, what are we doing? So we have to understand what sin is. Now, I, f- I found this really fascinating. Um, if you know, um, there was a book a few years ago um, that came out talked about um, the Hebrew words for praise, right? Um, when we say praise, because the English language is not as uh, expansive as the Hebrew language, they have, what, seven? Seven to eleven, I've heard. Um, not seven eleven. Seven to eleven. Um, Hebrew words for praise. And it's similar with the word sin. So we have sin in the English Bible, and there are nine, um, actually ten, including that first one, there are nine specific ways that we understand sin in Hebrew. So I'm going to go through that. Remember, this is Hebrew, and I'm from Luxor, so bear with me. So the first one is ra'ah, and it means evil or bad. The next one is cha'ah. And that means offense or deserving of punishment. Rasha, wicked or morally wrong. Avon or Avon means perverse, crooked, or wicked, like twisted. Pesha is rebellion. Asham, offense or trespasses. Ta'a means wonder or be out of the way. So basically to wander off the path. Does that make sense? Pasha means to offend or to rebel. These are verbs. And shaga means sin through ignorance. So without even knowing, I'm sinning, right? We talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins that I mean to do, sins I didn't even mean to do. Both are in there. Why go through all of these? Sin's problem. We got that? We're going to talk about the gospel. We have to understand how big the situation is. It's not, oh man, I just sinned a little bit, and now I just need to get right back under this thing. No, it separated us from relationship with God. It fully separated us. It wasn't just a bad move. It wasn't just, oh, I messed that one up. It was, mankind is now separated from God. You understand it? Big idea. Result of sin is separation from God. He is steady and we stray. Mm -hmm. He is steady. So when we're talking about sin, the way I think about it is it's like a road that he said go this way. And anything off of that road is us. Is sin. I mean, anything off of that road that we go off of is sin. We have to understand that he has this steadiness and it's a straight path. And we go all over the place. So, why do we need a Savior? Why do we need atonement? Atonement is the word. Where the Old Testament, they would atone for their sins. Why do we need atonement? Because sin separated us. The whole thing, we have to understand this in our deepest parts. This whole thing is about relationship. This whole thing, if we look back to Genesis 3... He was broken hearted because he had to banish the people that he had created for relationship. He wanted this relationship. He wanted 
to walk into the garden, right? He wanted to have this relationship, and now that's gone. That intimacy and that closeness and that level of relationship is gone. We see the problem. So, how do we get atonement? If we look through the whole Old Testament, we have to not throw out the Old Testament because it's old, right? My generation goes, Old Testament? That doesn't sound fun. So we're going to not do the Old Testament. We're going to look at the New Testament. We have to look at the Old Testament to see how for years, generations, thousands of years, they were longing for this atonement. Longing for this atonement. Why? Because in the Old Testament, they had the system. We're not going to go flip through all the stuff. But it was once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, was the way they'd set up the structure, the high priest would go in and atone. He would take a spotless lamb and atone for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. Make sense? So the year before, the prior year, they would go in to the, Ark, the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, sat inside the temple. And they would go in and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and God would receive it or not. And so what they actually did was tied a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he died, they pulled that buddy out. <laughs> it's that serious. It's that serious. It's not a joke. It's not like, man, whew, did that at three, and now at five we're going to go watch the Lakers play. And so it was the biggest deal, right? It wasn't this small thing. It was, is he going to receive, receive this, right? Receive our offering because we desperately need our sins that have separated us from you, that have that put us, that keep us in bondage. Like we need this to be atoned for. And so can you please receive this? Amen? We see this. Their whole like nation revolved around this day. This is the day that the entire nation's sins are atoned for. For this year. Until next year. And then the next year. And then the next year. Do we see how everything they did revolved around the law? All that is summed up. There's other things. Branches off of that. That is the law. We have a sin, a bunch of collective sins. We have separation from God. He requires a sacrifice. And we have to do it every single year. We see that? Yes. What does this do? It pays for the sins of the people. But where's the relationship? No. We see the problem there? Mm-hmm. The way that they interact with God is through a priest. It was through the high priest. He's the one who hears from God. The priest, the prophets. They hear from God and the people are watching going, I don't know, what he, I hope they're telling me the truth. Right? Like... I hope this is legit because they're the ones doing it. And we have our only way to get to God is through this priest. Our only way to have our sins, me, I'm just one in what? One million, two million people at this point, four million people in Israel. I'm just one. And I'm hoping and praying that he receives that offering. Because I need that. That's my sin on the mercy seat now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you see how everything that they did revolved around this? 
everything that they're thinking revolved around this law and this need for a Savior to actually pay the penalty for their own sins. We see this. Alright. We have to understand that the Old Testament was not bad. It was just incomplete. Mm -hmm. The Old Covenant, the, the law, was not bad. It was God's mercy and His goodness like Genesis 3, the parts that we look at as just, whew, that's rough. It was His mercy and His goodness to receive that from them. But they had to do it a certain way. Amen? So, whole Old Testament, just in a snapshot, fly through. Um, You don't need to read it. I'm just kidding. You should. Um, You absolutely need to read the Old Testament. Um, But, if you fly all the way through it's all that. It's all saying we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. This is where He's coming. This is what He looks like. This is where He's going to come from. It's all these prophecies that are saying we need this man. We need this person to rescue us from this law. Right? So, Jesus steps on the picture. Fast forward, what? At the end of the Old Testament, 400 years of silence, Jesus shows up on the picture. This is mind-boggling to me. What did they want Jesus to do? They were oppressed by Rome, right? They had been oppressed by Rome for not thousands of years, um, but a good chunk of time. What did they want Him to do? Just set us free from Rome. Jesus is walking on the picture going, bro, i got thousands of years to make up for. And they're saying, can you just take care of Rome? Like, they have forgotten... The whole need. They had become so obsessed and so committed to the system that they forgot the person that the whole thing was about. This dude shows up and says, I'm here, it's me, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah. And they were like, cool, just free us from Rome. And he's like, i got thousands of years that we got to figure out. Like, I'm atoning for everything in the future. You missed that part too. You know, like, I've got all of time to be a sacrifice for. And they're like, no, that's cool. Can you just make sure to get us out of this Roman thing? Do you see how, like, it's so, it's so mind-boggling that the Lord took us this morning, or today, through love, right? Like, I, I cling to you my first love. And I'm turning away from, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Like, just so you know, we don't plan these songs. We plan like the first one, and then we just say, let's see what he does. Mm-hmm. And today, Caleb can attest, I looked at him and said, this is the first song. I have no clue where we're going. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit. And he took us on this journey of love today. And it's mind-boggling that right here, we're looking at all these people that forgot about the love relationship with God. And they were obsessed with the law and the structure and the system and all of the stuff, Right? And what are we? What have we done? We have become obsessed with church. We've become obsessed with, well, what does that person wear? And what does this church wear? And what are they seeing? And what's their kids' ministry like? And what's this? And the whole thing is love. The whole thing from the first word in this book is He loves us and He desperately, deeply wants us to love Him. This is love. And when we fall into religious stuff, religion things, we look just like 
the Israelites in the New Testament. We look just like them because we completely missed that this whole thing is love. This whole thing is love. And this is what... I'm trying to get back on the back because he's taking us this way. But we have to understand love. We have to understand that this is not about doing right and wrong. This is not the, the, the gist of it. That's part of it, but it's not the totality of it. The totality of everything that we do in this life is about loving Him and being loved by Him. Alright? So Jesus comes on the scene. They hate Him because He's like, I'm not worried about Rome. we got bigger issues and bigger fish to fry and they're like, that's not what I want. That's not what I want to do. That's not our agenda here. So we're going to kill you. So, they say, we're going to kill Jesus. And Jesus is killed, put in the grave, in the grave for three days, comes out, raised, by, raised from the dead. That's the essence of the gospel, as we understand it. What we have to then do is go, what did he do? What did he actually do when he was in the ground for three days, comes out of the grave, and now he's alive. He's not dead. He's alive seated at the right hand of the Father right this second. So what does that mean for me? What does that even do? It's not something, this is not just a historical gospel that happened. The gospel is not just the good news that something happened. It's that it's happening. The gospel is today. The gospel is it started when he said, I'm here. And it will end one day, maybe. I don't know how the end's going to look. But it's going to end one day with Him coming and sitting on His throne. But it's that meantime that we have to understand, what are we even doing here? Because if we don't understand this, we go back into the same patterns that the Israelites did, and we start becoming obsessed with systems. We become obsessed with religion. We become obsessed with these things and we get into arguments and fights. And what he's calling us back to is love. I'm telling you, he wants revival. You know what revival is? People in love with him. So in love with him that he says, I'll lay down everything. I'll give up my house. I will give my house to that person. I will give that person $4,000 just because God said to. Like... This is revival. Revival isn't just feel good in a tent for three weeks and then go back to your life. It is radical love for Jesus, this man that consumes me and and sets my life on a new trajectory. And then that person gets it, that person gets it, that person gets it, and a whole city is transformed. That's what he wants to do. It's not just get, get in the system. and No, it's radical, passionate, obedient love. And if we don't understand that, then we fall into the same patterns as the Israelites. And what do we become? Pharisees. Hypocrites. We become the same things that he exposes them for in Matthew 23. Because it's all about love. So, there's a few things... That clock is breathing down my neck. (laughs) Um, Let's turn to Hebrews 10. There's four things that Jesus did that I want us to take away today. Jesus' work on the cross did four things I want us to understand. 
So let me get to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 10, not Hebrews 2. Hebrews also is what I should have said. Okay, Hebrews 10, verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality of itself of one of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer after or year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be reminded of sins, right? We look at that and we're like, yes, I need to be reminded of my sins so I can be reminded of what I was bought for. No, I want to be remembered that He paid my sins and they're done, right? So He's saying, in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. This is bad. That's my addition. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You do not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, You did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, See, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after He says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, the Lord says, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And they, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So what did Jesus do? First thing we have to understand is He fulfilled the law. The law was good because it pointed and reminded them of the need for their sins. It reminded them. But that wasn't the ultimate will of God. That's not what He wanted for them because He said, I don't even remember their sins. Why does He want us to remember them if He doesn't? Right? The goal was, you need Jesus. You need a Savior. You need this man to take one sacrifice, and for all of eternity, it's paid. So that your sins, you don't even remember them anymore. And there are some of you in this room that are sitting here and remembering everything you've ever done. And Jesus today is saying that it's been paid. Right, amen. It's done. 
and my Father doesn't remember them. When He sees you, He sees me, yep. and it's done. Stop thinking about it. Yep. Amen. That's right. Stop thinking about it. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. <laughs> well, I don't understand what you did there. Exactly. It's grace. Exactly. It's love. This is for love. He loves you so much that He's saying, stop thinking about that thing you did because it's covered. You don't have to do. You don't have to feel the shame. Shame doesn't get you anywhere. Guilt doesn't get you anywhere because I paid it. Amen? Amen. We have to see this. He didn't abolish the law. We have to, like, I feel, when I was a kid, I was like, Old Testament. <clears throat> you know? And now that I'm a little bit older, I'm not old enough to say that I'm wise, but I'm older, and I'm beginning to see just how good He is. Even in the things that I didn't like. Yeah. Even in the things I didn't understand. Even in the things that didn't bring me to where I wanted to be. He was so good. Right? Amen. He was so good. And we can't sit and look at the Old Testament and say, no, Jesus. No, Jesus is the Old Testament. He's the reason the Old Testament even exists. It's all these books going, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, and now He's here. Amen? Yes. Alright. So, Jesus, the first thing He did was fulfill the law. No more sacrifices, no more yearly thing. It's done. It's done. The law is done. It's Jesus. So, turn to Isaiah 53. should have gone ahead and put these in my Bible because I'm going to be finding them too. It gives us all time to get there. I do need tests. Alright, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at, at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away. Uh, people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet, he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pain. But we in turn regarded him as stricken. Struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on Him. And we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter... And like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. 
He will prolong his days and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see a light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mightiest spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Here's what I want you to see. The Old Testament, they believed, it was real, that the sins of the nation, they would take a spotless land, and the sins of the nation would actually be put into that land. It wasn't just an idea to them. It was, our sins are going into this land. And then we're going to sacrifice this land and our sins die along with it. Make sense? What Jesus did in that very last verse, yet He bore the sin of men and interceded for the rebels. Jesus took on our sin. Past, present, future. He, in His own body, His perfect, spotless body, took it into His own body and nailed it to a cross. Why is that important? The second thing, that we are now free from the guilt of sin. We are no longer guilty because my sin was placed on Him. And it's not a good idea. It happened. When He went to the cross and went to the grave... My sin was on Him. It's not poetry. It was on Him. My sin, my shame, my guilt in His body on a cross. And then He goes in the grave. He comes up and it stays in the grave. All that guilt, all that I've done, all that I've said, all that I've accused, placed on Him and it goes in the grave. Where's my sin now? In the grave. Where's your sin now? In the grave. In the grave. Are you guilty? No. Why? Because Jesus took it and said, I'll carry it and I'm going to put it to death. Amen? Amen. This is not a good idea. This wasn't He said, I'll take it and I'll put it on the shelf. He put it in His body and He said, I'm taking it to the grave. And when I come out, you're getting me. You get me. And so what we call that is imputed. It's imputed. Our sin was imputed onto Him. And what is imputed onto us is His righteousness. The same way that our sin was put on Him, His righteousness is put on us. When the Father looks at you, if you are in Christ, He sees Jesus. Thank you, God. He sees Perfection. He sees holiness. He sees righteousness. It's not a joke. It's not. It doesn't just sound good. It is his. Re- it's the reality that when God the Father looks at you, He sees the Son. And we can't think that this is just good story. This isn't just a story. This is our reality. This is real. That my sin, from the day I was born to the day I died, and all the sins in between, and all the sins of my family, and all the sins of my kids, and all the sins of the world, was placed on Him so that we could receive the righteousness of God. 
So number one, he fulfilled the law. Number two, we are free from the guilt of sin. Past, present, and future sins all placed on him. We died with Christ and are raised in his new life. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. tabs next time. And I just want us to look at verse 21. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 5 more. But I want to read verse 21 just to prove that. It wasn't just poetry, right? So sometimes you look at the Old Testament and you're like, well, what did that really mean? This is New Testament proof that what he was saying, he meant. What the prophet Isaiah said, Paul is going, he, it was real. Verse 21 He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He made the one who did not know sin not to just carry sin, not to just take sin. Jesus took on our sin and it says He was made sin. He became, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. That's the Bible. That's not my idea. To be sin for us. When Jesus went to the cross and He went to the grave, it was legit. It wasn't a good idea. It wasn't an act of kindness. It was the perfection of God. The righteousness righteousness of God taking on sin putting it in a grave, coming out and saying, you get my righteousness now. Mm-hmm. So number one, he fulfilled the law. Number two, uh, he freed us from the guilt of sin. Alright. we got two more. We have to ask the question then too. Okay, so he, he, he fulfilled the law and he freed us from the guilt of sin. What's this whole thing about in the first place? Relationship. Relationship. Mm-hmm. We can have those two things and not have relationship. Right? We can have those two things and not have relationship and connection and conversation with Him. We can not have the Holy Spirit, theoretically. I'm not saying that that's true. I'm saying if we just get our sins paid for, there's still the problem of reconciliation to Him. So, I'm not going to have you turn back, but we're going to go back to uh, Genesis 3. Don't turn there. What happened... And this is, uh, we have to understand this. The Word tells us that we are three parts as a a person. Me as a person, I am three parts. I am spirit, soul, and body. Okay? So I am a body who has a soul, or I have a body. Sorry, I'm getting backwards. I am a spirit who has a soul who exists in a body. Does that make sense? So... Body, physical body, right? We get that. Soul is our mind and our emotions, our desires, our will. It's it's everything internally that makes us us. Like, just because I have a body doesn't mean I'm thinking, right? My soul is that part of me that has desires and has thoughts. But who I am as a person, who am I, the part that lives forever, is my spirit. Does that make sense? So when God said, when you eat this tree to Adam, you're going to die. 
And we look at that, and maybe some of you have questioned that, and gone, well, why didn't he die right then? He did. The spirit man died. The body lived for a time, but the spirit man died. You see that? He, He was dead, and then if the body ate the tree, he stays like that for forever. He lives for forever. Make sense? And so the spirit man is what died. Why is this important? When Adam died, and through Adam, the sin of the world continued, what are we without Jesus? Dead. Dead. We have physical bodies, we have a mind and emotions, but the thing that makes us us, the thing that makes us not a monkey, the thing that makes us not an elephant, like, is our spirit. It's the spirit man inside of us is dead without Jesus. You see that? Why is this important? Because when we talk about new life in Christ, what really happened was we have a brand new spirit. The spirit man comes alive. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We know that verse? Dead in our... It means dead. It doesn't mean like, oh, it's just poetry. It means dead. Our spirit man was dead. And when Jesus died and rose from the grave, we actually rose with Him. The spirit man inside of us rose with Him. And so now today, because of Jesus, I'm not dead. My body looks the same. My mind has to be renewed by the Word and by the Spirit. But my spirit man is alive. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yeah. And what does it do? It lasts forever with Him. Mm-hmm. It goes through eternity with Him. And we have to understand that this is not good poetry, just like all this. Or we just think like, oh man, I, I, I mean, I'm good with Jesus, but like I was also pretty good with myself. No, you were dead. Yeah. Your spirit man was dead. Yeah. Not alive. Mm-hmm. Jesus, out of the grave, brought us with Him. And so the third thing that he did was we are now new creations in Christ. We are now new creations in Christ. I want us to understand this real quick. Um, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to skip a few. You might actually be at 2 Corinthians 5 because we were just there. I want to read this real quick. We've got two points real quick. 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Make sure I'm in the right one. Yes, sorry. Actually, flip to, go to verse 16. I don't know why I was reading from the beginning. Verse 16. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Here we go. Even, even if we have known... Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know Him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Mm-hmm. So, the Greek word for new there, we have to understand uh, this real quick. Mm-hmm. 
there's a Greek word. Um, there are two words. The same as the Hebrew, how we have multiple words. I mean, one word in English. There are two Greek words that we get the word new from. There's neos, yes, and kainos. Mm. Two Greek words, neos and kainos. Neos is like if I had shoes and my shoes wore out and I needed new shoes, I would go get a new pair of shoes, right? That is neos. I would just go get a new pair. It means new but the same. New but the same as the old thing. Does that make sense? It's still the old thing, but it's the it's a new version of the old thing. Then we have the word kainos. The word kainos is brand new, never before done. It's it, it's like you've never thought of it before. It would be the idea of saying, okay, instead of I, I need new shoes and I am going to get a new pair of shoes, it's like I didn't like walking in the first place. I'm going to get a jetpack. It's the same idea of just like. No, I'm going to do the whole brand new thing entirely. The whole thing is brand new. We see that? So it's kainos. When we are a new creation in Christ, we are not a neos creation in Christ. We are a kainos creation in Christ. We are not a better version of ourselves. We are a brand new, never before existed version of us. Yeah. We are kainos creation. Does that make sense? Do you see how that's important? If we think that Jesus just made us better, we miss mm. it. Yeah. He made us new. Yeah. Mm. He made us brand new. Brand spanking new. Okay. So, we are new creations in Christ. It's also important to understand uh, real quick, the New Testament, now we're on that. It's a kainos covenant. It's not just a new covenant, like a better covenant. It is a kainos covenant. It is a brand new, never before done covenant. The old, gone, right? It's there. It's, an, it's not just another representation of it. It's a brand new covenant. You see that? So, first thing, he fulfilled the law. Second thing, freed us from guilt of sin. The third thing is we are now new creations in Christ. And this is probably the most difficult to understand. And if we got like 10 more minutes, just stay with me. And this is the last point. Um, but turn to Romans 6. This one, I put it last because I'm really passionate about it. I should have probably put it earlier. So that we can actually talk about it. But Romans 6. We're going to read just straight through Romans 6 and 7. Real quick. So, verse 6. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin? So that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in the likeness of His death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer, this is it, be enslaved to sin. Remember that. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ... 
we believe that we will also live with Him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all time. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, right here, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. That's what Paul says. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity into greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, when you were slaves of sin, right? You were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you've been set free from sin, set free from sin, we got that? Set free from sin, and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Romans 6, by itself, is incredible. There's this massive thing where I don't understand and we're going to walk through it real quick but then people read verse Romans 7 and I'm like it totally is the opposite of Romans 6 what are you saying right we got these two chapters that we totally missed here we go I was gonna, it's all going to make a point chapter 7 since I'm speaking to those who know the law I'm speaking to those he's talking to the Romans you all know the law I'm talking to you brothers and sisters Don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she's married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. Then if she's married to another man, she's not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to one another. You belong to Him who was raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit of God, fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Now here, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary... I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law didn't say don't covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
Once I live, uh, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good uh, become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful. Uh, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, here we go. Last bit, fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now if I do what I don't want, I'm no longer the one who does it, but the sin in me. So I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Okay, that's a lot. Got it? Romans 6. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Not a slave to sin. Not a slave to sin. Romans 7. Why am I still sinning? It's probably because I'm a slave to sin. I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to the law. I was a slave to sin. How do we understand those? People have taken Romans 7 and said, this is how we understand life as a believer. Life as a believer in God is we are still going to sin, but we have to obey. And this is what I'm trying to understand is, is why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? And what we do is we make our bed with that. And we say, I guess this is just life till I die. I guess life till I die is I just have to keep doing the things I hate doing. Paul is talking about old Paul. He's talking about old Paul under the law. How do we know this? The last verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind... I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. And then you go into verse uh, uh, chapter 8, which we're not going to read. And it's, now, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What am I trying to say? Romans 6, you're not a slave to sin. Romans 7, according to the law... You had to sin. You were a slave to sin. Now, in Christ Jesus, it's done. Right. You don't have to sin. So why is this important? We can't go on thinking, I guess this is just life. I guess my life now is just try not to sin, but I'm going to keep doing it. And, and there are pastors, teachers, who I love and respect, that say that Romans 7 is Paul saying, 
This is who I am. No, he says he's a slave to righteousness now, and he was a slave to sin. You can't serve two masters, is what Jesus said. And so what that tells me is when I'm a slave to righteousness, I'm not a slave to the law or to the law of sin. See that? We can't understand our life and go, I'm just supposed to sin. When you know who you are, you don't have to sin anymore. That's right. When you know your identity in Jesus and that the law you are connected to now is a law of love and relationship with Him and the Spirit is in me and my spirit man is alive, I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to. And the enemy keeps us trapped by good Bible-believing teachers saying... You're just supposed to sin. Deal with it. Keep fighting harder. Keep fighting harder. And that is a part of it. But you don't have to fight because you're free. Yeah, he did it. You don't have to work yourself out of this thing. He died for it. You're not a slave anymore. That's great. What do you have to do? Believe that. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do? Make up in your mind, I'm not a slave to that anymore. Amen. I'm not a slave to that anymore. And I'm not going to walk in that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to think that anymore because I don't have to. And the Bible tells me in Romans 6, 7, and 8 that it's done. It is done. And we have to know this or we end up actually believing it's good for us to just fight sin. He fought it. He beat it. It's done. Why are you fighting it? Amen. It's done. Be free. Live. Jump. Dance, run, do what you're called to do in freedom and in fullness because the sin is gone. And that's what he's saying. Why would I go back and sin? Now it makes sense. It's not, of course I know I shouldn't sin. No, why would you go sin when you know who you are? Why would you go sin when He set you free from all of it? Why would you go back to it? It killed you. It left you in shame. It left you in shambles. Why are you doing it when He set you free from it? Amen? Amen. So the fourth thing that He did is He freed us from the power of sin. The first thing, He fulfilled the law. Second thing, we're free from the guilt of sin. Third thing, third thing we are new creations in Christ. And the fourth thing is we are free from the power of sin. We are slaves to righteousness. I'm not a slave to my body. I'm not a slave to my thoughts. The thing, again, in my head that is telling me that this person is just going to abandon me and this person is just going to hurt me and this church is just going to hurt me and this thing is just going to hurt me and all these things, I'm not, it's not my, that's not my master anymore. My master is the Spirit of God living in me that testifies that this word is true, that I am a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and now I am set free to live under the power of the Holy Spirit, not the power of sin. Amen? Okay. Here's the big thing. This is just the doorway into the gospel of the kingdom. So many people stop. I mean, that's a lot, right? We can talk about that for months. I'm like, that, like in church mentality, I'm like, that's a whole series. That's a six-week series. But this whole thing is trying to understand when he says the gospel of the kingdom, 
Jesus was just the doorway. Jesus opened up the door to the kingdom and said, you need a Passover lamb to get through because your sins can't get in here. So you have to be born again. Spirit man born again. Makes sense. And I'm just going to open the door and let you walk in free. So we're going to unpack in the weeks to come um, what is the gospel of the kingdom. But we have to understand first the door, right? We don't get the house without just walking through the door. We have to walk through the door that is Jesus. Amen? But then we get to walk into the kingdom of God. It's not just like play stuff. It's the kingdom of God. And we have to take seriously the fullness that He has for us. Or we end up just going about and about. Actually, in Hebrews, Hebrews, think, but he says, let's don't keep going on over the elementary stuff. That's what he says. Let's don't keep going over the elementary stuff about how we got here. He's saying, don't, don't look at the elementary stuff about how we just got into the house. Be in the house. Not this house, his house, his kingdom, right? And so we have to understand that we are stepping into the fullness of what God has for us. If you want anything less, I urge you to pray. For God to give you hunger for all that He has for you. So let me pray.